Welcome to this episode of Clarity Generates Confidence. We are in season six and the, our theme this year is being intentional. And I'm really delighted to have with it a doctor who I haven't known in a really long time, but really got to appreciate and know partic particularly how he is transitioning in his life. And so Dr. Michael Sonic is with us. He's a practicing periodontist for over 40 years, teaches at a couple of universities in the New York area, and also been a coach to others. And the real part that I like about what Michael is, he's got a book out about treating people and not patients. And that's such a novel way to approach all this. And our conversation before we got started was really about, let's look something, the humanistic part, the humanist part has been missing from the healthcare. So Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gary. So you know, we, we talked about a bit before we got on, both of us are technical from that standpoint. I'm an engineer, not nearly the same way as you are from that standpoint, being, you know, practicing periodontist. But what got you thinking about treating people as opposed to patients? Because what I remember from college, as you remind us, we're both similar age, but I mean, is that they don't teach us anything about the business. They don't teach us anything about people, just our practice. So how did you get beyond the technical aspect into really thinking about people? Well, I've always been a people-oriented person. As an aside here, I never shared this with you. My dad was an engineer. Oh, God. <laughs> so I, know, I know the mentality. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, a really good one. And he wrote beautifully and everything was in box letters. And he was very organized. And he always knew how to get from A to B. You know, do you know Rube Goldberg at all? Oh, absolutely. I, that, that's, he's, <laughs> he's my hero, Rube Goldberg. <laughs> so that everything. was my dad's hero. <laughs> he, he, Rube Goldberg, everything. And a funny story is my nephews, <laughs> my dad was very big and strong, but he passed away about 10 years ago. And he was like, you know, one of the strongest men I ever met. I not like him at all. He had physical strength. At the end of his life, he, he wanted to move stuff and he couldn't do it anymore. And he had a furniture store too. And I had to move furniture and we did customer service in a furniture store. And, you know, he was like 80 something. And he, he wanted to move this like 400 pound air conditioner to the basement. And I couldn't move it myself and he couldn't. So he, Rube Goldberg said he has the whole thing with the pulleys and the rolls and the rails and the slides and everything. And we get this whole thing ready to go. And then my nephew walks in who's 6'4 and, you know, can bench 400 pounds. And he goes, what are you trying to do? He goes, we're going to move this to the to the basement. And he looks at the whole Rube Goldberg apparatus. And my nephew, Jonathan, who's an actor out in Hollywood, Jonathan Chase, he picks up the air conditioner and he walks it to the basement. He goes, and then my dad just looks at me and goes, oh, we could do it that way too. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So you're one of the few people that knows who Rube Goldberg is. I mentioned that to younger people, they don't know. I, I just pulled that up. But anyway, I grew up, I grew up, my dad had the furniture store. He was an engineer at Sikorsky Aircraft. You know, he was chief of design services there. And I had a different brain than him. And he was, he, he did sales, but he wasn't great at sales. He was really great at, you know, building and doing things with his hands. And I think that's why I became a dentist because my dad wanted to become a dentist because he was a World War II veteran and he got out of the war. And then if he became a dentist, he went to graduate until he was 29. He goes, that's way, way too old to start a career. So he ends up becoming an engineer. So he wanted to become a dentist and he would have been really good because he was great with his hands. And they pushed me in that direction. I was more into hospitality, music, the arts and acting. And that's what I wanted to do. And they they teased me a lot. They said, you know, you'll be really successful playing the piano in a Manhattan Savings Bank on Third Avenue for the blue haired ladies at noon. That's what you'd end up doing with, the, with your life. And I said, well, 
I don't know. So they, they didn't give me a choice. They said you had to go to medical or dental school or become a lawyer. And they go, don't become a lawyer. So I ended up becoming a dentist, probably because of my dad. And I wasn't particularly good with my hands. And I and I got really good, at, good with them because I had to. But what I really loved was the human connectivity. I always did. I was a lifeguard. I moved furniture. I used to I used to help people refinish furniture in their in their homes. And in college, to help put my suit through college, I ended up waiting on tables and working resorts. And I went up to Kennebunk, Port Maine, right by the Bush State there. And I was at the Shawman Inn, and I waited on tables there. And I bartended. And I played cocktail piano. And I went to Saratoga Springs, New York, and I worked in different restaurants there. So I probably worked in about eight or nine different restaurants. And, and I really liked it. And I was like 19 years old. I knew nothing about liquor or wine or serving. And it was this guy who was about, his name was Claude. And he was really elegant. He had a handlebar mustache and it was waxed at the end. And he knew how to open up a bottle of wine. And, you know, he introduced me to the, you know, the favorite wine, which was Lancers back then, you know, and I mean, I don't know what that is, $4 a bottle, because we were drinking Boone's Farms. And I thought <laughs> Claude was very elegant. So I said, I like the way he does that. So I started to learn how to do that. And then I became a cook. And then I took, and then I had boarders come into my school, into my house when I was in college, because I didn't want to clean. So I said, I'll cook for everybody. So I just got into the whole thing. I take $15 a week and I'd make five meals for that and all breakfasts. Back wow. back in, you know, you know, it was great. And then people would want to, I took in people that came to my house to just to have dinner there. And so I got into the whole hospitality cooking thing. And when I opened up my practice, I was always sort of artistically oriented. I just wanted everything to look perfect. And I wanted people to come in and feel very comfortable. Like I'm looking at you now in your background, and I assume that's your office. And it's perfect. It looks really good. It looks very inviting. I want to sit at that table. I want to look out that window because it's really set up nicely. It's very nice decor. So I started to pattern my dental office after other places that I really felt comfortable in. And most of those were restaurants. And Danny Meyer became a mentor to me. Danny Meyer, who's the founder of Shake Shack, but also what he's most well known for in the restaurant business is, is writing a book called Setting the Table, mm -hmm. which is all about bringing hospitality to restaurants. And that book is the Bible in the restaurant industry. So if you walk into any fine restaurant, in any city, you go to one of the top restaurants and you walk in there and you go, have you read Setting the Table? Everybody has read that book. It is it is the Bible. Now, you and I may not have heard of it, but if you're a restaurateur, you'll know what that is. And that was Danny Meyer's book. And his first restaurant he opened was Union Square Cafe. It was opened up in 1985. It was the same year I opened up my office, coincidentally. And I started to follow his career and I watched him on TV and I watched him open Gramercy Tavern. His restaurants have become some of the fav my favorite restaurants to go to. 11 Madison Park, which he has since sold to a guy named Will Gadera, who wrote a really good book called A Reasonable Hospitality. I've seen it up at Coach, Strategic Coach in Toronto. They have it for sale there. That restaurant was taken from one of the top restaurants in the world to number one in the world when Will Gadera was only 37 years old. He bought the restaurant from Danny Meyer. And the way he did that was bringing unreasonable hospitality to his clients. Yes, the food was good. It was a beautiful restaurant. But they did that something extra. That's that's something extra that only the great really do. You know, I think what I have out there is a a two percent rule. Two percent of the people are really great at what they do. So that could be an engineer, it could be a, a hairstylist, it could be a barber, it could be a plumber. If you can ever find one to return a phone call, I mean, if you answer the phone and you're a plumber, you're in the top two percent automatically. But if you answer the phone, you show up. Yeah, don't don't talk to me about that today. I have a story about that today. I end up all the crafts. You know, if I was in if I was in the trades, I would kill it. I didn't, I wouldn't even have to be good. All I'd have to do is show up, and because it's hard. And I pretty much am in the trades. I'm a doctor. We're <laughs> we're basically glorified plumbers. 
Actually, we don't make as much as plumbers, but we do okay. <laughs> you have more. You have more technical skills than some of them. More fine, more fine skills than they've got. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But anyway, I've always been into the service thing because I look at it. So when I walk into a room or a restaurant, I, I, it's, it's a blink. You know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about it. I look very, very quickly. I look at, you know, what's the lighting like? You know, what is the lighting like in this room? Are people being nice to each other? You know, why do you think Whole Foods is doing so good? Because the food's better? Well, it's pretty good, but the lighting is beautiful in Whole Foods. You know, the vegetables you know, look great. You know, I, something you, you hit on, and I was going to say, I said, I've, I've always looked at it in, a, in that way, but in my, my context was energy. What's the energy, you know? And you've right. been in my workshop rooms, and I, I always consciously manage energy, and who's ever in the room, go there. But I, when, I look at, when I look at a place and look at an, an office, I... I traveled around, got into very many offices, and I could tell what it was like when I first went in and who the who the boss was because it all emanated from the top on the way down. But I really like so when you go in a place like Whole Foods, it, there's the lighting's important, but it's a there's a there's an energy, there's a warmth, there's a there's something inviting about it, and and I think that part's really really it's important for all of us. And I would think particularly in the dental profession, which which sort of has that <sighs> white heavy yep. duty white coat syndrome, making people feel comfortable because, you know, when you work on people's teeth, it's pretty personal. I mean, this, you know, you, you can look at other parts of your body maybe, but I know someone's working in my mouth and I've just had to have a root canal. I got to have a crown done and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a personal situation. So I give you a lot of credit for thinking about that from the, the human and the personal side that isn't as opposed as in, in conjunction with the technical aspect, that's really important. Yeah, you make two points there. One is the from the top. I remember when I walk into any business and I see somebody who's very disgruntled, you know, an employee, you know, they're sweeping the floor and they're throwing the broom. You know, the first thing I look at is who's in charge. And I, usually the person <laughs> is acting just like that person there and, and vice versa. Like one of my patients is a guy named Stu Leonard. I don't know if you never heard of him. He owns a bunch of grocery stores. It's the largest independent grocery store chain in the United States. Wow. And they do 500, I think, million a year in sales. Wow. So Stu Leonard's father started the business years ago. He, he recently passed away in his 90s. And Stu Leonard's about our age. And I said to Stu one day, I go, you know, everybody in your store is in a good mood because they have a rule when you walk in, it's a rock. And they go, rule number one, the customer's always right. And then rule number two is reread rule number one. So it's all about, you know, the customer <laughs> and they have dancing vegetables. And it's a whole, we just went there for Thanksgiving with my daughter who was, grew up in that store. And she was just like, she's 30 now. And she was like a little kid again, running around looking at the dancing broccoli and the corn and the spinach. <laughs> I'll have to do that. That's a new one for me. I got to tell you. It's pretty funny. But anyway, so I said to Stu, I go, how come every, what do you do to train your people? And he goes, I have them watch a video that my dad made. I go, how long is the video? He goes, 20 minutes. I go, when did he make it? He goes, 1970. I go, and then what? He goes, then they go to work. But the culture of the business is really related to the person at the top. And it's all about that. And, you know, you and I are part of an organization, strategic coach, the culture comes from the top. You walk into that room, you feel good there. There's good food, there's beautiful lighting. You know, people always say, I mean, there's actually somebody greeting you at the door now when you walk in. How often do you go to a conference and there's a greeter at the door at the top of the stairs, there's a greeter. And they make it very, very, they make it so you want to go there. There's another point that you made was, and I forgot what it was going to be, but it was all about, it's, it's, it's about bringing that hospitality into a dental office. Yes. You know, I talked to a friend of mine, his name is Todd Williams. He is his executive vice president for Seasons Hotels, and he's also involved in the medical field as well. He's not a doctor, 
And his job at Four Seasons is to open up the new hotels. So when a new hotel opens, and two years ago, he opened up one in Philadelphia, which won the hotel of the year. He goes in and he hires the staff. He hires 400 people and he gets the whole culture together. That's his job. His job is to train all those people. And he does a beautiful job. And the Four Seasons is known as one of the nicest hotel chains in the world, especially Four Seasons, the Ritz, but the Four Seasons particularly. And he tells a story about the Maui, a hotel that they have. And there's a room there that's $25,000 a night. So why do you need to spend $25,000 a night for a room? You know, if you can afford $25,000 a night, you probably have a bed at home that's as nice as the one in the hotel. You probably have, you probably have your own cook at home. You probably have good food at home. Your stereo is probably better. Your sheets are probably better. Everything at your home is probably as nice, if not nicer than the hotel. So why do you want to spend 25000 What do you do? And it's like, I never slept in a bed like this. He says, no, the reason that you go to that hotel is because people know your name. They take care of every one of your needs. And you don't worry about anything when you're there. He says, what you want is you want to have patience or your customers, your clients have the absence of worry and you want to remove all fear. And so one of the things that when a patient comes in to see me, I always say that I'm like a divorce attorney. I get to see people at their worst. So when people come to see me, they're stressed. Now, what I am is I'm a periodontist. And for your visitors or your people on, on who don't know what that is, we take care of the foundations of the teeth. So that's all gum, bone work. And right now it's dealing with severe infections, doing major reconstructions and things like that. So the average person that comes to see me needs a lot of work. And my average patient is 65 years old and they have neglected their mouths or have had bad experiences before. Most of them have gone to the dentist, but they'll go and they won't go. They go, they won't go. Because most people don't go to the dentist. Over 50% of the population doesn't go independent of financial net worth because they're fear. Their fear, their fear of the unknown, their fear of pain, their fear of being taken advantage of, their fear of the bad experiences that they've had, and their fear of being hurt. And so when a patient walks into my office, the first thing that I say to them, I said, congratulations, you know, you did the hardest thing is walking through that door. Because for every seven or eight patients that are referred to me, only one makes it. So there's a lot of people out there that are, have my name, but they're never going to come see me because they're scared. And by the time they come in, they're embarrassed, they're humiliated, and they're really, really full of fear. So I will say to them, I said, I know what you're thinking and I know what you're going through. I said, but I want to tell you something. You are in the right place. I'm going to take care of you. Immediately within the first 90 seconds, I will almost say to every new patient, you're in the right place and I'm going to take good care of you. And I know you don't trust me and I don't expect you to. I go, but I've been exactly where you are. And I have been because my story, part of my story is I had a very bad accident when I was eight years old. I went over to handlebars on my bike. I broke my jaw, I knocked out my front teeth, and I was in a bloody pool in front of my mom's house. And my mom, I felt bad for my mom, not me, because I'm eight, and the eight-year-old doesn't know anything. My mom came out, and I'm laying there with a dog, you know, that had jumped on my bike over me, my next-door neighbor's dog, Tippy. And uh, she took me to the hospital, and they wired my jaw shut. And so for six weeks, my jaw was wired shut at the age of eight. And I went for high school with two little broken stubs of teeth. I didn't have any front teeth. And because back then, this was in the 60s, they didn't fix your teeth until you were done growing. And so I got my first caps when I was 18. And since then, I've had nine teeth removed and I have 23 crowns. And I've had wow. about six or seven root canals. So I've had more dentistry than most of my patients. The advantage that I have is that I didn't have my major reconstruction until I was in my 40s where I could choose the best dentist I knew to take care of me. But even then, I was unsure and I had to trust somebody. So when I see my new patients, sometimes I'll tell them that story, sometimes I won't. But if they think that they have it worse than me, I will share that story with them 
And even if you don't have that story, I find a way that I can connect with patients to, so that they will feel that I hear them, you know, because most people don't feel heard, you know, and, you know, we talk about things like active listening, paying attention, you know, eye to eye, knee to knee, being at the same level. But I really do that. And I, it took me a long time to figure that out. It took me about 20 years. So, so let me give you, let me give you a thought that I learned during the pandemic which goes right to what you're saying, right to pandemic. We had to, we still did our team meetings. And so we'd always do a fun thing on, on the Wednesday and then the Thursday would be our meeting. So it was one time we had improv, improvisation come in. Yeah. And there's a, a group called the Making Box in Guelph, Ontario. And I got to this guy, this guy named Jay, and he came in and did it with, I said, how could you do it? But he did, they did a good job. And I really liked him. So I had him on the podcast shortly thereafter. And I've, and I've been to improv before and I've had the, you know, the trainings and coaches done some of those things. But he said, Gary, there's two things you've got you got to do. Cause I said, how do you make, how do you get people? We're, we're on the screen. I'm doing all these people. I got 40 people or whatever on zoom. And I'm, you know, always used to doing things first. He said two things and I'll say them both first. And then I'll explain. He said, state before script and connection before content. Mm. And I said, Jay, what do you mean? He says, state is state of mind. What's the state of mind of people before you even start your script? So let right. me give you an example. So as you walk into a strategic coach, somebody greets you there, and then you have to go up the stairs. Somebody greets you at the top of the stairs. You see a couple of pictures, you see the color, right? Things. So, and there's a nice wall at the background. So they're setting your mind up. In his way, he said, well, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes. So we, we walk them down the hall and they walk into the room that they're going to go into. We make sure there's a bottle of water in everybody's chair and everything else. So, you know, when they're coming to do their improv session. And so he said, state before script. See, yeah, as I said, the second thing is, is that connection before content, which is when you said connection kind of hit me up. And so, you know, they know why they're there. They got a problem with their mouth. You know why they're there. And right. you, what did you do? You said, well, I know their state of mind. Do you remember what you just said? You said, I know their state of mind. I've been there. And you said that part. And then you said, so I'll get that. I'll figure out where they're at. And then, and then I'll get the connection. So he said, you might not trust me, but we need to have a, a connection so we can, because the content for you is I'm going to go do this work. And so that's the whole, the whole, those two things have stuck with me now for several years. And that's how I, I look at it. So before my calls with a customer, I ask him what's going on with the weather guys in Southern California. I know he's a big angels fan. So we'll talk about the angels or something else. Nothing to do with business. For What's his mindset at? If he wants to get right down to it, I said, okay, you cut that off and you get going because that's what his mindset's like. So what you've done is actually very much, and I just wanted to leave you with those two thoughts so it's clear in your head as you go through this, is as you go through the, the, all this work you're doing, is I felt that very powerful. But state before script and connection before content. Congratulations. That's, that's brilliant. You know, I'm from an acting family. So I was an actor in high school. My nephew, Jonathan Chase, is, a, is an improv. He's been, he's the white guy in all the Tyler Perry shows. You can look him up. <laughs> I'll look up for, that for sure. My first husband is Rick Michael. He's an impersonator in Vegas for 40 years. He, he does a brilliant Sinatra. I'll send you his link. And uh, you know, my niece is, you know, was the videographer for the Jennifer Hudson show and the Ellen show. So we, we, we do, I mean, at our table, it's a lot of acting going on all the time. And I take improv in New York and you know, what the way you said is very important. You know, a lot of times we do this unconsciously, but you help clarify a couple of things. We have a setup that comes in. I say, when I teach this topic and this concept to other doctors, I say, when I walk into that room to see, meet the patient for the first time, I go, they're already sold. I have to blow it I guess, because they're set up. And before they meet me, they have had about 20 different contact points to set them up. You know, the website. So if you don't have a great website, that's very nice and inviting, you know, and I've seen, you know, I've seen, a, you know, your website's beautiful. It gets, you have to make that beautiful. 
if you don't pick up the phone and have a human being pick up the phone, you don't want to go into a phone tree. You don't want to ever be put on hold. The worst thing is to be put on hold and listen to an infomercial about how great you are as I'm being put on hold for four minutes and I'm being told that they'll call you back. What's a convenient time? And the convenient time is now because I'm on the phone, you know. It's it goes it goes on and on and on. I mean, do you plant do you have nice planters in front of your office? Do you have rose bushes there? Are you in a nice neighborhood? You know, are you greeted when you walk in there by name because they know who you are? If you have an 11 o'clock appointment, how many people have an 11 o'clock appointment? So, you know, if you're there for the first time, oh, you must be Bob. Nice to, nice to see you here. Yeah, that's right. How'd you know? And if it's your second appointment, we know who you are because we have a photograph of everybody. You know, most people don't have a photograph. You know, so everybody, you know, there's a photograph in, in the computer. Hey, Jane, nice to see you. I'm glad that you're here for your appointment. Gary, I'm sorry we're running two minutes late. Can we get you a cup of coffee? Decaf, regular, or how about tea? We have a menu in our reception area of various drinks that are, you know, we could have taken away during COVID, but they're back again. So yeah. if you want to pick, choose something, have something. Are you going to be waiting a couple hours because your husband's in surgery? Here's a private room. Would you like to make your phone calls up there? Here's the Wi-Fi. Make it as, remove all the blockages to, to saying yes to treatment by making people feel comfortable. Most people have what I call a sales and an anti-sales deployment team where they do everything possible to make you not buy. All right. It's like, I was ready to buy, you know, I want that hamburger. Okay. It's $15 for the hamburger in a nice restaurant. Now maybe 25, 15 is cheap. It's $25. Can I have a slice of tomato? It's the next, it's an extra 50 cents for the tomato. I, I'm leaving. Okay. I'm leaving that restaurant at, at that, that point, or if I'm not leaving it, I'll never come back. So, you know, I'll walk out. I, I won't walk out, but I'll never go back over, over silly things. And that's what's called, you know, we have the cancel culture now where everyone's getting canceled, but no one talks about the other type of cancel culture, the quietly canceled, the things that happen to you in your life that you never realize are being happened to you because you think your life is just terrible. You think your life sucks because nobody's being nice to you. Well, you just got quietly canceled because you don't say, you don't smile at the person at Starbucks. You know, you're not nice. We, we call it the garbage man's wife. So when you're in, when you're in Whole Foods, and someone's bagging your groceries and you're nice to that person, which most people aren't. They're not nice to, you look at the way the people are treated behind the cash register terribly. And, you know, they're on the phone, they bag this, put this here, they're yelling at them. I am always nice because you know who that woman is married to? She's married to the person that picks up my trash. And when I put out the chaise lounge that, or, you know, I'm dating myself, when I put something that shouldn't be in the trash and it really, I know, don't I know what you, unfortunately, I knew what you meant. Okay. <laughs> well, I put up something there that did not, because it's too big. And they're not going to pick it up. Well, that guy is going to pick it up because his wife was real nice to him when she got home for bagging groceries because I was nice to the wife when she was there. And that's the way it sort of works. You don't even realize all these good things are happening to you. I get upgraded to first class because I just don't, I just don't, I'm not pushing whatever you have for me. Oh, here's first class. I see it happen all the time, especially in airports. You know, you see people getting really bad service because they're really bad. And I just don't try to get good service. And so oftentimes I get something great happening to me. So, so Michael, let's, let's go this. You've written a book and I, I, I really, cause it's, a, we could talk for a long time and I, I knew this yes. before we got started, but uh, there's a couple of things you're treating people, not patients. And I know you've sold your practice. We won't talk about that so much today, but what I want, I do want to talk about the book and, and what you're doing now, because I'm, you know, I, you have a real gift for wanting to inspire other people and you've got great stories. So let's go. What what prompted you to write the book, and then how are you using that as you take this now into another chapter in your life for the next the best decade you're going to have now, Michael, coming forward? So, wait, what when's the best decade of your life? Now, now, okay. <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, you you and I are soulmates when it comes to that. You know, we're very similar. I just want to compliment you, Gary. You do a very good job. 
you know, you you are you are not Tony Robbins, you're not Bill Clinton, but you've worked real hard about connecting with people, and you've developed a phenomenal school. And I see it when you're in a room, you make everybody feel comfortable, and you work hard at that, and you go out of your way. And and that's something that I noticed, and I noticed it the first time I met you. Thank so, you. big kudos. I appreciate to you. that. I really appreciate that. I'm a gra- I'm just a grassroots guy, Michael. I put one foot in front of the other, and I keep going forward. That's it. <laughs> yeah, but you work really hard at it, and you do it, and you and you and you have a commitment. And, you know, it all starts with, you know, having that commitment to really, you know, becoming always a better version of yourself. And that's why this decade is always the best decade. Yeah. Well, you know? well, I really sincerely appreciate that. But I want to hear about okay. your piece here because I, 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 you got, I, I, I love it. I love what you're talking about. Uh, fascinating. That's what really got me keen on, on having you come on because I knew you'd have a great story. So I'd like to hear more about that, please. And, so, and your, your so why did I do, why did I do it? Cause I've always been doing it. I've been doing it. You know, I have a neuro-linguistic programming coach that's been in my office and he called me unconsciously competent. And what that meant is that, you know, I'm good at what I do, but I'm not sure why I do it. Cause I'm just naturally good at it because it's worked for me. And it ha- he had, and after working with him, I started to break down what I do. And I realized that I have a formula for everything I do. I break everything down into an algorithm whether it's going to be a procedure that I'm going to do. If someone comes in with this type of infection, these are your options, et cetera. And so when a patient comes in with this type of a problem, I have an algorithm of how I take them through the process. And I realized that we were never taught that in dental school or medical school. And I'm good at it. I have a gift for being able to connect with people immediately, but I've worked hard at it. Part of it is a natural skill. You know, some people think I can read minds because I connect quickly, but I, I don't. I just ask a question and then I find out. And then we have 42 sets of muscles on our face and you can really read a face quickly. I'm not a good poker player, but I can connect with people very quickly. And it's just by being there for them. And I realized that this would be something important to teach people. And I started to talk about it. And as I've been teaching, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate what I do, I, but you know, after you've done 15, 20,000 of the same procedure, you get pretty good at it. It's routine and it's, and it's not challenging me to be a good dentist anymore because I've learned it over 40 years. So I said, you know, maybe I should just start to teach this, which nobody's teaching. And I've been talking about it. And I said, I, I told everybody I was going to write a book, but it, you know, I have no time to write a book because I was busy working, you know, in the practice and COVID hit. So I had no excuse. So I started doing a podcast like you do. And I did it for COVID and I did it to bring away everybody's fear. And I was free and anybody can come on and talk about what's going on in dentistry. And I didn't know what I was doing. The first one I had was on Zoom. And I didn't know how to mute people. And we had 200 people talking at the same time. <laughs> it was so silly. And people were half-dressed, you know, in front of their computers. And I had to have certain oh, rules. Hopefully the right half. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was sort of crazy. And then I started saying, you know, I'm going to start to teach this. And I wrote the book. And then it started taking on a life of its own. And when I started the People Not Patients thing, one of the guys I work with, Ken Varner at Zimmer Implant Company, said, I'm sure that, that that's going to change. But it never changed. It was the right name. And it's just grown more and it's resonated with people. And it's my true passion. And because I teach clinical stuff too, and I've written textbooks and people want to learn surgery, I do both. But I think my true passion is really doing, doing this. It really lights me up. And I get an email like two or three a day saying, Hey, thank you for this. Thank you for this. And I can see it's changing the way people are relating to other people and you get to pay it forward in a really nice way. So if I can change the way healthcare is delivered or make a difference, it's really hard to do that. I mean, it's really because you got to have people wanting to do it. And there aren't too many people that are out there that are sort of like raving fans of this topic because it doesn't make you more money on on a balance sheet. You go, oh, I'm going to learn how to be nice to people. That's basically the bottom line. Be nice to people and connect. That's going to make me more money because most people are in business to make money. I go, that's the only I go. There are other things to look at and the quality of your life will improve. The quality of your patients' lives will improve. 
you'll be putting out so much good karma up there that you make a better life, better life for everybody. And I think that's sort of cool because the stress level as a, in any business, I mean, dentists have very high stress levels, a very high suicide rate in dentistry. And I'll, we'll talk about that another time, but people are very stressed. You know, it's a very intimate thing. As you said, we're close proximity. We're, we're touching, we're touching someone who doesn't want to be there. Who's in pain that doesn't want to pay for it. Doesn't want to waste their time in that share and is worried about pain. And they're worried if you're doing, and they're not trusting you, that's really stressful. That's a hard, that's a hard, that's a hard place to be with the dentist and the patient. And if you can change that, I don't feel that much stress when I'm working. I can change that. I feel like I'm giving a gift to my patients and they thank me. They thank me for doing surgery, cutting them, suturing them, and then they're paying me and they took their time and they go, thank you so much. That's sort of cool when you can actually help them, take them through that very difficult journey and make it easy for them. You, so. see, you see, to me, I because that's how we resonate with each other in a sense that just there's basically two ways you can be nasty you can be nice i mean it's, it's right. just you can do and i've found it much better to be nice and so when you talked about that as treating people it just made i mean i joke and i mean i joke with people to the edge of like can i get away with this or not get away with it but all in good intent you know mm -hmm. and to help them and talk to them i mean my wife it drives her crazy because people all have name tags in the stores right oh Beth, how are you doing today? And she'll look at me like, where, where did you come from? And I go, well, you got a name tag that we call you by your name. So, you know, but it's just, so it's just the kind of way, and I enjoy that. And I, I was going to say one piece about that is that, you know, we have a balance sheet, not only in business, we have a balance sheet in life. Mm -hmm. And there are long-term assets and there are short-term assets and there's things called cash and there are liabilities. You know what? And I don't like to have many liabilities and I don't mind in when I look at these things, I call it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make deposits into the bank of goodwill. That's on my balance sheet, the bank, right. of good, the bank of goodwill. And you can't make withdrawals unless you've made deposits. And so I'm gonna say, how much goodwill can I spread around? So I know I'm gonna need it someday and right. I wanna be able to draw on it. And so that's kind of why, what really resonated with me about you for this one, so. Well, I think that's how you built your career and your life as well. You know, yeah. I mean, you didn't do it by stepping on every, everybody else to get there. No, because you, you know what they always says. You you know if you burn that bridge, you might have to cross it again. So and when you're young, you don't quite see it all the same way. But as I mellowed out over life, so Michael, if you could believe it, that we've just gone through thirty minutes in a flash. So I can't I can't believe that time. So what else, I know there's lots you can say and would say, but I really appreciated this time. But what's the one thing that you'd like to leave everybody with now as you think about what you're doing going forward and how important your mission is to help humanize the healthcare business? Well, I think no matter what business you're in, if you're in any sort of business or in life where you're dealing with other people, you know, try to always be there for other people and to probably give more than you receive, you know, and by giving more than I receive, the irony, it's a very ironic thing. You get more. <laughs> so I had this one employee that worked for me. He was terrible. He was really terrible. And but I, <laughs> But I don't fire people. I keep them, unless they do something deceitful. I give them a chance. I give them a chance. But he fought with somebody, my office manager, and I ended up giving, you know, he was a techie guy. I gave him some speakers. He goes, why are you giving him that? I go, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't hurt me to give away. I'm going to end with one quick story. Please. It was, I was at a, I was at a graduation at a university, Sacred Heart University, which is in Fairfield, Connecticut. And the keynote speaker was the head of United Technologies where my dad worked. His name was Ralph Gray. And he, actually Henry Gray. 
and he was telling a story about knowledge. He says, if I had all the knowledge of in the world, you know, and I gave it all away, I'd still have all the knowledge. But if I had all the money in the world and I just gave away one dollar, I'd no longer have all the money in the world. So I look at it that way as like I can give everything away that I have. I could be completely nice. You know, you want to know what I do in my office? I'll show you. I'll show you everything I do. Everything's online. I have 1,100 pages of content on my website. A lot of it, all my lectures are there. You can take it all. I still have it. And I will probably make the world a better place. I think by giving everything away, I'm not, I don't lose anything. I usually make it a little bit better. And that's what I, that's what I found. I've never seen anybody take something that they've learned from me and use it against me. No. And if they try to, it's, it's not going to really work because they don't know what I know. They know what they think that I know or what they think they've known. So I, that's, that's it. Just, just be nice to people. I went to a course once. I can't stop talking. I'm sorry. I went to a course once that it was on financial planning, but I didn't know that. I thought it was on how to build a practice. And I was like 30, <laughs> I was on, I was, I was on, I was 30 years old. And I walk into the room and everybody is in their seventies and is hunched over, is gray hair. And I'm with my friend, Fred, and I'm looking around and I go, Fred, you are only two young people here. Well, the course got run by a guy named Harvey Sarner, who's since passed away. And he gets up, he goes, you know, I know you're here for the end of life retirement planning course here, but it was misprinted in the schedule and it's not about practice building. So for those of you who are here for practice building, I'm going to give you the practice building course right now. He goes, be nice to people. We're done with that course. So I always thought about that. If you're nice to people, practice works. It's that simple. You know, it's that simple, but it's hard. Yeah. And it's not always easy. Michael, this has been a real pleasure. I know I'll continue to get to see you and connect conversations. And I certainly wish you all the best as you go down that path and mission you're on. Very honorable, but also necessary and really valuable undertaking you've taken on. So my appreciation and kudos to you for that. Thank you, Gary, for having me. And for all the audience out there, until next time, please stay safe and stay healthy.